Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders and top athletes throughout the sports event industry. This is Matt Traub, Senior Editor of Sports Travel, and our guest today is Ross Young, the Chief Executive Officer for USA Rugby. But before we begin, this episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 21 will be held at the Atlantic City Convention Center in Atlantic City, New Jersey from September 27th through the 30th, 2021. This year's conference will again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic SportsLink program and NGB Best Practices Seminar, as well as the annual symposium of the National Congress of State Games. For more details on everything we have planned at Teams this year, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the conversation. USA Rugby has gone through a lot during the past year plus. Not only was it dramatically affected by the pandemic, like every other national governing body in the Olympic movement, it filed for bankruptcy protection last year. Having come through the process with a streamlined operation, USA Rugby now looks ahead to the upcoming Olympic Summer Games, where we'll have men's and women's rugby sevens teams competing in Tokyo. USA Rugby has announced it will move forward with proposals to host either the 2027 or 2031 Men's World Cup, along with the 2029 Women's World Cup. We talked with Ross about the state of rugby throughout the United States, the planning process toward bidding for a World Cup and what that entails, and much more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Ross Young, thank you for joining us today on the Sports Travel Podcast. You're more than welcome, Matt. It's great to be here. USA Rugby filed for bankruptcy protection last year. What is the financial state of the organization today? And how hard was it to go through that process, especially when you're going through it during a pandemic? Not, not, not something I'd ever want to repeat is probably the, uh, the best way or cold or <laughs> anyone else involved in the organization. Yeah, if you look at the business model about the way that USA Rugby is an NGBs is put together. You know, we're relying on the game happening for us to be sold. We've gone through some tough times in trying to reorg and reposition the union just before that. So we were certainly more fragile than, than we should have been. But, you know, with that happening literally just at the start of the pandemic with so many unknowns, it was incredibly tough. I suppose positive from it, Matt, was that because the pandemic really kicked in just at that time is that we were able to focus on getting through it literally 100%. So had and, and have a pretty hands-on board. So, you know, there were a couple of individuals that stepped up to take on a little bit of oversight of the day-to-day duties that allowed a couple of us to focus on the procedural elements, if you like, of the bankruptcy itself, which were pretty all-consuming. I think we were a we're an interesting case for the bankruptcy court to deal with, just with our structures anyway. And we didn't, it, you know, it's not as if we we're making widgets or, you know, we're the the type of business that that has, you know, clear production lines or and, and P and L. So, like the first thing to do was, you know, was to really make people aware of of, of how we operated. We're, we're obviously a five hundred one c three and. It was very clear from, from the judge and the process to start with that we didn't have a huge amount of debt in relative terms than, than other, other bankruptcies that, that they deal with. But we had a large number of smaller debtors, which is all insane. And, you know, a lot of them good rugby people, which is gut-wrenching when 
you have to go through and they have to give and write off a lot of debt, a lot of entities that were supportive of us, that gave us the flexibility of terms to pay that then that we couldn't pay. So going through that was incredibly time consuming. And you know, fortunately, the vast majority of those those debtors were, you know, were, re- were understanding given the, the dynamic. You know, we, we had to make some tough decisions staffing wise, but you know, we've hung in there. So to your point, you know, the second part of the question, I think, you know, we had to let a number of people go. We're very much on a, a skeleton staff. We've stayed on that while there's still a fair degree of uncertainty about getting back to play. We're certainly nudging to towards whatever the new normal is going to be with much better, more streamlined accounting processes, separations of funding, which had been an issue with the union in the past. So I think we have a framework now. I'm confident we have a framework now. We've got the new board fully seated that, you know, can just continue to hang in there for this next few months and be able to, you know, regrow the union and and, and really get back to what we'd started with the, with the reorganization about building out a, a proper sustainable business and operating plan to go with the, the strategic framework that remains broadly the same as it was when we did that work pre-bankruptcy. I know that it's been an extraordinary past year under the best of financial situations and circumstances. How difficult has it been for national governing bodies to conduct their businesses? And where would you say you, how do you feel you are on terms of sustainable financial ground coming out of bankruptcy with an eye toward the future? The most important factor of both of that for us and speaking on behalf of other NGVs is, you know, how sport at our level, if you like, at that Olympic level and away from the, you know, the very big professional money-making machines of the NFLs and the, the NBAs and the MLBs, et cetera, is, you know, we are and always have been very reliant on the support of, of the USOPC and Rick Adams and Sarah, Sarah, who's we have who's the sort of head of sporting operations, Sarah Hirschland, who again is a relatively new CEO to that organization prior to this as well, is you know administratively supportive. They they've run lots of initiatives, advice, you know, help with funding and support with with their member NGBs. And, and for us world rugby, I think we as a rugby community. Again, a very fortunate. And again, I speak for us as an NGB, just for for USA Rugby as one particular union. When you look at the difficulties of the Australian Rugby Union, which is reasonably well documented, going through, you know, this situation, you know, they've dug into their reserves and helped helped a number of unions to get by. So everyone's a little bit nervous and a bit nervous about over committing too early. The the general part of the question, just really incredibly grateful for for the support of uh, our, our, our international federation in world rugby and, and the USOPC to, to provide that, you know, aligned with what we're incredibly well blessed with in, in, in the US is a very strong philanthropic base. We managed to ring fence a, a number of those funds as part of the bankruptcy as restricted funding that had been given as, do- that had been given as donations towards the national team. So, that didn't get stripped out. So I think we're in a good a place as we can be, Matt. And, you know, those are certainly the three main streams that have helped dig in with us to get us to a point where now we can, as I said before, already restart the rebuilding process. We are on the cusp of another Olympic Games uh, to be starting in Tokyo at the end of July. Rugby Sevens debuted at the last Olympics. And what impact has that exposure had for the sport in the United States? I think it's, 
it's been fantastic. It's certainly, you know, that uh, and the TV exposure it had. I think when you look at some of the statistics around hits, hits on our websites, especially around the women's competition, which happened very much at the first weekend of Rio. You know, the, the men's competition kicked on from, I think it was the Monday, Tuesday. So there wasn't, there's not a huge amount of activity. Obviously, the track and field doesn't kick off to the, se- the second week. I think we hit a pretty sweet spot in the, in the last one with, with Rio. The women were on Good Morning America and, you know, we're fortunate again as a sport. A lot of our players and coaches are very good ambassadors for the game, very comfortable in, in, in front of you know, in front of the camera and natural in front of the camera as good people. So, you know, it's certainly good for us. It, I think everything around Rio last time and the exposure came as a little bit of a surprise. One of the difficulties is that not just us, but everyone else having a constant uncertainty around Tokyo, is it going to happen or not? And you know, and the situation we've all gone through with the pandemic is we haven't done as much as we would have loved to have done had we been in a normal cycle and not gone through everything over the last 18 months to prepare ourselves to you know, touch wood if we are successful and both men and women are certainly pretty well favoured to, to potentially medal. I'll be in the best position resource-wise, money-wise, like everything. If you have success, you know, to be able to maximise that opportunity, you have to have resources, money to be able to do it. Um, Calder and Alina and, the, and the, the team that have put together a good plan, would we have loved to be able to engage a lot more to be able to maximise what will hopefully be success? We, we haven't, but I, but I think everyone else is going to be in that same position. So, you know, for us, if we can build off the success of Rio, get greater impact on here and build towards you know, potentially even LA in 28 to really use that as the one that's going to you know, be the, the hockey stick type, type, if you like, with regard to impact that, that helps participation. We, we just got to try and keep playing the long game. I want to talk about the World Cup and the USA Rugby has recently announced it will be moving forward with proposals to host either the 2027 or 2031 Men's World Cup, along with the 2029 Women's World Cup. What do you think is the realistic likelihood the event could come here? And what kind of encouragement are you getting from within the, rug- the rugby world? We're cautiously optimistic. I think the, we have a huge advantage over other countries in that we have an infrastructure, we have stadia, you know, we have a sporting environment like no other in a, in a massive country that, that, you know, if it's done well, will undoubtedly benefit the sport globally because you say a women's event combined with a men's event combined with the Olympics, as we talked about in 28, you know, with a soccer world cup in 26, we go through that sort of four or five year cycle. You people realize in a number of criteria, certainly the men's world cup and the, the women's world cups making great strides towards it. But statistically the men's world cup, is up there in a number of criteria as the third biggest global sporting event in the world. And I think following on from some of those other events and doing it well really gives us an opportunity to cement that position. I mean, there are some interesting stats out there when you go back to when the Soccer World Cup was held here. That still holds the records numbers of attendees for the event, even though the number of games in the events increased. That was way before the MLS even took off. So when you, when you look at all the data, statistics, and criteria there. You know, honestly, for a, the the global rugby audience, are aware that the trigger and the, the knock-on effect that that will have for 
selling in rights for the Six Nations, for the rugby championship into the US media market will, will, be, will be a huge benefit as part of that legacy. The increased participation that it will give, hopefully, to, to the host on the back of use initiatives will, will raise the domestic game. I mean, we've seen what's, what's currently happening in the US with Major League Rugby, very early stages still, and everyone's aware of that. You know, that will have time to grow and they've actually been great in helping partner with us through this early due diligence stage and candidate stage, if you like. You know, so even, even that part of the professional game and how that integrates into the global landscape, I think will just, it will raise the bar for everyone. So, you know, we've certainly got a ways to go with, with getting it across the line. There is good support in general out there from from other rugby territories, other NGBs, other professional leagues around the world that that will know that ultimately they'll benefit from it as well. So everyone saw the knock-on effect of the benefit of a non-traditional territory like Japan and you know, in the early stages post-2019 in the pandemic again, that we, you know, there, there were some ridiculous, incredible viewing figures around rugby when it kicked off again in Japan after the World Cup in 2019. So uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, optimistically, quietly confident that we'll get something out of this process that will, will undoubtedly be good for the game in the U.S. long term. What is the case that you plan to make to world rugby for why their largest event should come to a country where, while growing, rugby is not the most popular sport in America? To that point, how much will the 2028 Olympics being in Los Angeles determine which year you focus on bidding for when it comes to the Men's World Cup? I feel I'm talking lots and answers, but you're asking lots of really good questions combined into one big question. Well, thank you. Um, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I think convincing them, just what we talked about earlier, you know, a, a lot of the, the benefits of hosting here, you know, I mentioned previously, if you look at the challenges of hosting a World Cup, you know, for all the success criteria in somewhere like New Zealand, massively, massively successful event, there were, there were problems in the operational delivery in New Zealand, just on basic hotel room. They had to bring cruise ships in to take on passengers in to, to, to cope with that command, getting around the country. Obviously, people jump on airplanes in the US, like people jump on buses or trains in the UK. And even though it's a much bigger landmass, the infrastructure to be able to support movement around the countries there. And just you know, one of the biggest drivers is the size, scale, and quality of the venues. Those venues, as good as they are, are going to undergo some variations to meet the criteria for the Soccer World Cup in 26, which will be beneficial for us because a lot of football venues as they currently stand are narrow for rugby. You know, a rugby pitch should be ideally 70 metres wide. And with the runoff area of a tri zone, it's very difficult to fit those in standard football venues. So... A soccer pitch, even though it's not got the runoff areas and dead ball areas, the basic pitch from goal to goal, goalpost to goalpost is the same. So, you know, the, the, the alterations are going to be made that are going to be made to venues as part of that soccer World Cup is going to assist the 27 and 31, as, as you said, because that, that, that's coming through first. So I think it's not difficult to look at the business arguments and operational arguments. I think the there's always going to be a nervousness, as you said, about is there, enough, is there going to be enough demand within engagement, within fans, within the host territory? That always, that, that, that's always a base for a successful tournament. Rugby's lucky because 
you know, in some of those games, up to 40, 50% of the attendance of those games are from international traveling fans. We've seen that in the US a little bit with a couple of the bigger games we've had here with when we hosted New Zealand, Ireland, and Chicago a few years ago. It's never going to be as successful unless you've got that good solid base of fans. I think the, you know, coming back to that point I made earlier around the Soccer World Cup when it came here was it wasn't soccer wasn't a mainstream sport in the US then and yet it, it still holds the record for attendances. So I think we've got work to do in ensuring that the awareness of the overall event, it's not just coming to see a game of rugby, it's coming to be part of a major event and everything that comes with with fan zones partner engagement you know the right partners that you have that do things in activations in open zones in cities and you know all, all that's part of the major event model now and you know i think that that negates some of that the second part of the question is where's the uh, you know the strengths and benefits between 27 and 31 in particular around the soccer world cup and the olympics being here in 26 and 28 and a lot of the benefits are we can momentum. Do we want to be in the middle of the two biggest sports events in the world? There are economies of scale in some of the infrastructure, staffing levels, things like international broadcast centers. You know, some of the way the venues are configured, as I've said earlier, instead of them going back to a normal configuration and then getting built out again for, for 31. And do we just continue to help build that momentum around that super series, if you like, of those three big events in three consecutive years? Yes, there are some benefits, but there's also a potential danger that we get squashed and lose a bit of interest because we're bookended by those two events. That's the next stage of where we are in the candidate phase is really digging into that in more detail and some common sense. And, and one of the biggest riders that, that may be pushing some of that is maybe 31 is the best option to go for with a you know, women's event in, in, in 29 you know, using the same staffing infrastructure for both, you know, really have a women's tournament that covers a bit more of the US, where, you know, previously the women's event is more, seems to be more concentrated in a region in a country and rather being countrywide. So allow us to roll a little bit more and then potentially certain, not so much for the women, because the women are up there and, you know, they've obviously won the World Cup before and have been around the semifinals and, from a men's perspective, is it better to give us a 10-year lead time to allow for more investment in the men's 15s program, get more regular competition for that team, which is what Japan did that ultimately made them more successful and got through the quarterfinal stages when, when they were hosting. Some of those common sense criteria maybe point you towards 31 is the one that, that makes more sense, but we've got a bit of work to do before we come to that complete assumption. As you determine which edition of the Men's World Cup you could potentially bid on, what process and timeline, if any, do you have right now in terms of identifying how many venues you would need and how you would identify potential host cities? I think that that's something that's blowing World Rugby away because we already started that process very early. So before, you know, we've, we've gone through what, well, we went through our own feasibility study first before entering into it what they call a dialogue phase with World Rugby. We've also, we've already pre-submitted a lot of that information. So I think we're fortunate that we had Jim Brown, who was the COO of the successful soccer bid. Jim's one of the you know, world-renowned subject matter experts from, you know, he's been involved in Olymp Winter Olympics in Park City, the Summer Olympics in Sydney, and then he was tournament director for FIFA for Germany and South Africa, I think. 
Jim's now concentrating on some of that bidding work. So, you know, he was on our board when we were talking about it. He said previously led the, the bid process for that successful bid, US, Canada, Mexico for 26. So he already had those point of contacts and engagement with a number of those cities that had been part of that process. So we reached out very early and initially had more than 50 responses from cities to a really detailed questionnaire about their, you know, their expression of interest, the venues that they'd identified within their, their areas and potential training venues, hotel capabilities. You know, we went back for some more information as part of that and we looked at it. So, you know, we're still up around 30 venues that are part of the process that we've, that we've got with around 38, 39 venues. Some, you know, some cities have, you know, the very big NFL stadia with the slightly smaller MLS type stadia all within their sort of boundaries. And it may be appropriate not to use the biggest venue in some of those cities for, for some of the games. So. There is a huge desire to be involved. You know, we pre-submitted a lot of that information to World Rugby through this phase. Generally, there is a set, pretty much a set profile of what World Rugby want from a men's World Cup, as I said. They're looking at more innovations in how to build out the women's tournament a little bit more from a multi-venue perspective. But if we concentrate on the men's, now that 20-team, four pools of five, Ideally, you don't want any more than between 10 or 12 venues to, to run that type of event across a six-week period. You know, the cost of setup, media tribunes, venue dressing, it's all pretty expensive. And you know that it's a time of year when potentially those venues are going to have NFL requirements. So you can't bump all that in one week and then bump it out and then bump it back in again a couple of weeks later for another game. So you really want a window of a couple of weeks per venue and then for some of the key venues that are going to host the semis and finals, you want that proper runway all the way through. So, but you know, as per the innovations around the women's events, we, you know, I think we want to explore with World Rugby, especially if we're going to gear towards 31. That might be the time to look at expansions and look at six pools of four and more regular rest days and have a 2014 tournament, which may nudge that up to the 14 venues um, across various different cities. So Level of interest to be involved, level of support that's already been promised, obviously nominally, because we're, we're we're still got a way to go in the process. I think the city engagement and, and venue engagement has been incredibly high, and we're we're a little bit spoiled for choice compared to other countries. USA Rugby is in a unique place compared to some other NGDs, and that you have two different parts of the game to grow. And I'm not just talking about men's and women's, but in the Olympics, you have rugby sevens, but you also have major league rugby in its fourth season with the regular 15 aside game. How do you balance making sure that both sports are able to grow in the U.S.? And where do you see the landscape of the sport growing between both the 15 aside game and the sevens version over the next couple of years? The good thing, the, the, the MLR, even though they're fully sanctioned and supported by us with regard to world rugby rules, disciplines, referees, et cetera, is that, you know, the day-to-day running of the game, they, they are a separate entity. I mean, we have regular contact, you know, with the ability to sit in in various different board meetings and they are in their infancy, but they, the main driver, they are, they are a separate entity financially and governance-wise from USA Rugby. There's a whole bunch of mutual benefit of that, but they're off doing their own thing and we want to support them where we can on that and, and vice versa, as I said earlier with them. You know, they're hugely supportive again behind a, 
a, a rugby world cup bid for obvious reasons we you know we've had the wpl around the 15s women's side which there's been various iterations of pro leagues and semi-pro leagues around the men's for a while but that's been pretty solid as a tournament which has helped continue to produce 15s players that the other question around the balance between 715 7s and 15s is a tough one because you know you look at a number of unions in the world that have much bigger commercial turnovers and much bigger bank balances than we do that don't concentrate on the four teams so men's and women's sevens and fifteens you know we'd love to do better the the, the women's side is 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 you know even especially from a fifteens the women's fifteen side if you look at external funding is is more underfunded than the other three programs we just don't have that much discretionary in discretionary revenue as a union because we're so reliant on grants in the sevens world rugby and usopc in particular with both direct athlete support and project management support from the usopc pretty much equal for, for for both so you know and we get world rugby funding for both those programs but it is tough we don't want to give up on the philosophy that we want to give all those four teams the best opportunity to be successful and you know, with our annual turnover, you know, pre-COVID, around that twelve million a year, you know, half of it in membership, which doesn't, which is ring fenced, that doesn't go to the high performance area. So the whole membership money is supporting our membership and growing the grassroots game. Those national teams fund it's around commercial revenue, which again, just in our landscape, we don't generate as much as obviously in England or in New Zealand do with, with their commercial side. World Rugby USOPC grants and philanthropy that fund those teams and spreading that across teams when, you know, you look at some of the, the figures kicked around in preparation for the last World Cup, you know, you're talking of tens of millions of dollars of particular World Cup prep for some of those teams. And I think our, our men went into it and we ended up overspending, which was, you know, which was not great by any stretch of the imagination. But we were still, we were still a tenth of what, the other teams around us in a in a in our group were with with preparation for that event, and you never you're never going to bridge the gap when the funding gap is remains as big as it as big as it is. So, getting the right plan together, as we said, getting something like a, the two World Cups locked and loaded that are a target for us in the future will increase our opportunity opportunity to go there and generate more revenue. So it's a little bit of a car and horse scenario as we put it together is for us to be successful and develop fund all four of those teams properly you know we need to generate more revenue but we need some key targets and we need consistency of, of games to be able to do that and you know having that shining star if you like in the future to, to build around of, of the hosting of a major event like world cup hopefully gives us the ability to do that well, Ross, I really appreciated all the time that you were able to give us and information, not just about building USA rugby throughout the country and all of its men's and women's programs, but with an eye toward potentially hosting a World Cup in the future, which would certainly be a major, major achievement for the NGB. Thank you very much for your time. And thank you for appearing on the Sports Travel Podcast with us today. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Matt. We really appreciated it. And uh, let's get everyone out there to get behind this. And, you know, let's put rugby where it belongs on the U.S. landscape. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. 
Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Matt Trout for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.